We get to um, God's Word in our last installments in Colossians. We've spent the entirety of the school year in Colossians. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be that way. Um, it was supposed to be just this, the fall semester, but um, God's providence, I got wordy. Um, but we end, our, we end our time in Colossians with this final passage. We'll pick up in verse 7 and read to the end of the, the book there in Colossians 4 through verse 18. Hear God's word. Tychicus will tell you, I'm totally going to mess that up throughout the day if I have to say that a lot of times. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers of the kingdom for the kingdom of God. That simply means they're Jews. And they have been a comfort to me. Pick up verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hands. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. All right. Goodbyes, they can be difficult, right? Some of you are really good at goodbyes. I mean, you just you rip it off with the ba- like a Band-Aid, right? Some of you struggle. Everybody ever heard Brian Regan talk about trying to say goodbye? Or he wants to say, take care, but then right halfway through it, he says, he wants to say good luck. Ends up saying, take luck. Take it and care for it. Take the luck that you have. Care for it. Hold it. Some of us struggle with goodbyes. Paul seems pretty good at it. He gets used to it in all his letters. And and sometimes we reveal, as we say goodbye to folks, a part of ourselves in the middle of the goodbye. Our affections, our emotions may well up. Sometimes we finally say the thing that we have been meaning to say for quite some time. The appreciation that for some reason we have been so embarrassed to state, but now in, in the last moment have the gumption to finally say Sometimes it is we, we realize that we have to clear the air of an offense before we depart from somebody. Sometimes it is uh, we, we got to give instructions, right? Isn't, even as an adult, this is what your mother does to you when you're leaving her house. Call me when you get home. Make sure you tell me when you've gotten to wherever you're going. Take care. Be careful of the weather, whatever she says. Sometimes they're in a goodbye. You start making plans about the next time you're going to see each other. Hey, it's our 10-year high school reunion. We'll see you at the 25th. We'll see you the 25th. We'll see you next summer. Well, what is communicated? There's a lot communicated here by Paul in this goodbye. He says a lot. It's goodbye buckshot from Paul, and therefore it's difficult to kind of categorize it well into a clearly thematic sermon. So we're simply going to walk through and 
try to articulate some of the things I think that come to the forefront of Paul's thinking here and what he's trying to communicate. Paul is communicating some things indirectly and that they're implicit to what he's saying, some emphasis that we see here. And there's a few things we'll look at that he says very directly to the church in Colossians that we can learn from. So three things this morning that I think is articulated, that is communicated to us, that Paul tells us in this passage and in this goodbye. And the first is this. Paul tells us how God is changing the world. That doesn't sound here like Paul is someone at one of the award shows. Apostle of the Year goes to the, the apostle named Saul, formerly known as Saul, who is now Paul. And he gets up there and he's going on, I'd like to thank my third grade teacher. I'd like to thank my administrative assistant and my messenger boy. I'd like to thank them for all the work. Couldn't do, them, do it all without them. See, in the midst of all the names and the apparent little details and instructions we see in this, in, in, in this goodbye, what can be missed is the, is the forest for the trees. And what is clearly seen is that Paul has what? He's got friends. Do you have friends? Think about this. Paul is a man, he's a superstar in the faith. Paul's a superhero. One of, the, one of the great mistakes we, we can make in ministry, and for me in particular as a pastor, is to say, can I be Paul? God hasn't called me to be an apostle. He hasn't called me to write God's words. He hasn't called me even to be a superhero. Paul appears to be a superhero. Paul has accomplished an unbelievable amount in his lifetime. He has incredible capacity. He's clearly a genius and a brilliant man. The way God shaped and, and, and directed his life, that he would have known the Old Testament scriptures back and forth, and that God would have saved him and made him the one who could so clearly and beautifully articulate Jesus as he is found in the Old Testament and articulate the New Covenant beautifully and brilliantly. Paul's not only a great theologian, the greatest theologian the church perhaps has ever known, and he writes God's words by the Spirit of God, but not only that, but he is a movement maker. He's a church planter. He leads hundreds, if not thousands of people to Christ, but not only is he worried about simply leading people to Jesus, as important as that is, he wants to see something even greater than that, a movement of church planting in the world that supports and keeps the gospel flourishing and moving forward for generations and generations to come. Paul takes the gospel to pretty much the entirety of the known Roman world, we believe, and plants churches wherever he goes. He takes on the role of overseeing and developing a whole movement and network of churches all over the known world during that time. For example, the church in Colossae, Paul, we, as we, if you remember from the very beginning of the book as our study, is that Paul did not plant the church in Colossae. In fact, we don't even think he'd ever been there. That he didn't know these people that he was writing to. But he, he, what actually is what we believe what happened was while Paul was in ministry in Ephesus, he led Epaphras to Jesus he trained him up and equipped him, and then Epaphras was sent out, and he planted numerous churches, including the one in Colossae and probably the church in Laodicea and perhaps others. Paul not only to save people, but also to equip people for the gospel as leaders to send them out, to multiply the efforts of the gospel, and to, to grow the kingdom of God around the world, to, to establish kingdom outposts. That's what the church is. Kingdom outposts all over the place. So Paul is a superstar, but Paul doesn't do it alone, does he? Paul is certainly extraordinary in many ways. He was an apostle, but Paul is certainly also human as well. Right? If you remember, Paul has physical ailments, perhaps 
He's blind. We're not really sure what his physical ailments were, but he had issues that he, as I'll refer to later on in the sermon, issues that, that was a struggle for him as he sought to preach the gospel. He needed others to care for him. What we find often is that Paul is physically hurting because of his prison sentences and the beatings that he takes. We often find that he needs encouragement, that he gets down as well. We find that in order to have the capacity that he has in order to reach and communicate with so many teachers and leaders and churches around the known world, that he needs a secretary and he has someone who works for him to write often the letters that he is dictating to them. The greatness of Paul was not so much found in him and him alone, but the power was found in his team, in his team, in this fellowship of the non-heroic. And Paul understood this. Here's what Paul, Paul understood in regards to the power of ministry. In order to change the world, you can't, you, you can't do it by yourself. Paul made companionship a part of his missionary method because he knew that he had to multiply himself. He believed deeply in the fellowship of believers and a network of leaders around the world. And there's a principle here. There's a principle here, a common grace principle that we see played out both in Christian circles and also in secular places as well. And it's this. Here's the principle. Now, I heard this first from a man named Skip Ryan, who's a brilliant pastor in our denomination. I think this is a really helpful definition or principle that he articulates here. He says this. It is not great people who change history. It is not great ideas alone that change history. Rather, it is great people with great ideas in a network of people who change the world and who change history. Let me give you two illustrations, one rather negative and then the second rather positive in regards to how this plays out. You need a network of people to change the world. The first is this. The first example is from Frederick Nietzsche. Frederick Nietzsche was a, you know him as a, a philosopher. Many consider him to be the father of communism and socialism. And his ideas expanded into the 20th century. But he was a, a, a 19th century philosopher. And was not well known at all in many ways. Until what, there began a movement in Paris called the Salon Movement. In which the wealthy of the society in Paris began to, as a means of educating themselves, would begin to have these salon parties where they would invite the cultural movers and shakers and the great thinkers and businessmen of the day to come share their ideas and thoughts. Think TED Talks for the 18th century and the 19th century. All right? And so that's what they're doing. They're coming in and they're having discussions around these issues. And that's where Nietzsche was able to present some of his ideas and his philosophy, and it took off. His, his ideas began to spread all over Europe as the Salon movement began to spread into other parts of Europe. And then his ideas were taken up in the arts world and the musical world, in particular by a guy named Wagner. You may know Wagner, Richard Wagner. He wrote, he began writing very martial music and began to take, that took hold of Nietzsche's ideas and put them into music and expressing them in artistic forms. And his music was all about the will of power and the need for an Ubermann to make things, to, to change the world in the way it was supposed to be. Now, then there was another guy that helped pursue, that pushed Nietzsche's thoughts into the, into the uh, mainstream, a guy named Hitler, a young, disaffected Austrian. He took, up the, he took them up the music of Wagner and Nietzsche and took his ideas and put them into place on the street level, what it looked like to take Nietzsche's thoughts and put them in the place within a country and how a government and a culture ought to work. And you know what the soundtrack of the Nazi government was. It was Richard Wagner. 
It was a network of people to spread these hideous ideas and this hideous philosophy that did what? It changed Europe. It changed the course of history. But that's a depressing example, isn't it? But there's incredible power in a network. Let me give you a positive example. Another one from the 18th and 19th century in which a Brit named William Wilberforce became convinced that he was um, un- unbiblical and frankly terribly immoral for one man to own another man as property. And he began to feel the call that it was his job to change the British Parliament, the British culture, to be against this particular practice of slavery. That was a significant problem during that time, is that the entire foreign industry of Britain at that time, the foreign empire, was based on this. Their economy was based on slavery, is what propped it up. 80% of the, uh, the economy, foreign economy of England during that time was propped up by the practice of slavery. And so Wilberforce knew that he couldn't accomplish this himself. He couldn't get a law passed that banned it in Parliament because there was too many connections economically. And so he began to gather a group of people around him, of other politicians and businessmen and people in economics and various parts of the culture. And they began to meet on a weekly basis on this one particular issue. How are we going to end slavery in our society? They became known as the Clapham Group because that was the street in which he lived. And this group began to work, knowing that they couldn't get the law passed in Parliament. They began to work and just try to change the way business was done in Europe. They used all of their influence. They would meet on a weekly basis, and then the the businessmen would go out and see how they could create new networks within their business uh, areas. Or the artists would go out to their areas and see how they could communicate these ideas in their fields. And over the course of time, what they began to be able to do is to undermine the slave industry in the British Empire. So much so that they began to speak to how it was immoral and also to show how the business practices were not ultimately and long-term a good thing for England. And through that, more and more and more people began to see it as both immoral and bad business. So much so that eventually, while Wilbur Wilberforce was on his deathbed, Parliament was finally illegalized slavery, the possession of other men. But it took many years. It took 50 years. Fifty years, weekly meetings, an entire network of people. There is power in team and power in network. There is power in fellowship to not just change a city, but to change the worlds. Paul understood this. You see, how is God changing the worlds? Through gospel partnerships. Do you have gospel partnerships in your life? You want to change your kids? You better have a partnership with your wife, with your husband. We want to change our city, we better have partnerships with other Christians who are like-minded and have a passion for different issues going on in our city. If you live a solitary, singular life, living with a lone ranger mentality, thinking that you can accomplish great things all by yourself. No, no, no. You'll crash and burn. We must stop trying to be, we must get rid of this desire to be the hero all on our own. It's selfish and self-centered. This is such, a, such vainglory, and if we continue on the path of lone heroism and thinking of ourselves as so great, either because of our theological knowledge or because of our personal capacity or because we're so passionate about something, if we re- remain there, either we will eventually give up the cause or we will get crushed or we simply just won't accomplish very much at all. There is a form of individualism that is out of step with what we see in Colossians. You see, in Colossians, we are all hidden in Christ Jesus. We, we talked about this numerous times. We are united to Christ, and therefore, as united to Christ, we are united to other people. 
And then we are united into the supreme one. You are not supreme. He is. And therefore, let's stop trying to be so supreme and being little, trying to be little heroes ourselves. The last couple of years of reading and reading and listening about church leadership and about what's best for the church and the mission of the church, what has consistently come up is this. And with all the things that I've read, as I've evaluated church and church leadership is this, is there is power in team. Two things, team and multiplication is the power for achieving great things as the Spirit of God works through it. Work in a network and in a partnership with other people. The ministry leader, the disciple, the community group leader who's trying to do everything themselves will not accomplish very much. We must begin to see that we are, in fact, limiting the effectiveness of the kingdom if we just try to lone ranger it. Did you know that many people, particularly in my age group and maybe a little bit older generation, just slightly above me, there was a denouncing of church denominations. That it was, it was more spiritual to be a part of non-denominational churches. Well, may I suggest to you that that's frankly unbiblical. And that what we see, this idea of denominations, people think that denominations are the things that split people. That's actually quite the contrary, isn't it? Denominations are the ones who are centralizing around one mission and one theology. They're actually holding on to one another. Denominations are a good thing. Yes, it's not a great thing that we're split up into various denominations, but at the very least, let's partner with other churches who are theologically and missionally minded like us. We should be a part of networks. You know, one of the main ways in which the church is beginning to grow and develop right now are these things called church planting networks. You may have heard of Acts 29 network. Denominations themselves are networks. Ways in which we can multiply ourselves, gather together resources and our thoughts, and grow together for the sake of the kingdom of God, to put aside some of our petty differences for the good of the mission of God. And so one of the mantras that we should begin to have around here is who are you going with? And that's one. Who are you going with? Do you have a team around you for the things that you're seeking to accomplish? That means parents, come to parent discipleship time on Sunday mornings during the main part of the year. Have a team around you as you seek to care for your children. Who are you going with if you're trying to do, engage in some particular ministry in this city? Are you going it alone? Or do you want to bring people around you? If you're trying to do adoption or foster care, you need a team around you because it's more than you can handle. That's one question. Who's, who are you going with? The second is this. Who's replacing you? You see, you're not going to be here for forever. And you are one person. But there is power in multiplication. It's in the very heart of the DNA of how God has created us. And Adam and Eve, he created the ability to multiply. In all the fruits of the field and the trees, there is the ability to multiply. And so brothers and sisters, as a church, we have to multiply. And as leaders, we have to multiply. It is in our arrogance that we try to remain in the positions of power and don't replace ourselves. You should work yourself out of a job in this church. Take someone with you. And so we as individuals, as community group leaders, as ministry leaders, and yes, as a church, as a whole, should connect ourselves for the good of mission because it's in being together with other people by the power of the Holy Spirit that unites us that great things happen. That's how God's changing the world. The second thing that Paul tells us here is this. Paul tells us who God is using. Paul tells us who God is using to change the world. There are all kinds of people in Paul's fellowship, isn't there? Both in their gift set, but also in their maturity, in their backgrounds, in their stories. Let me just use this list of folks, this, this, this na- seemingly nameless group of people that you may have never heard of in Paul's letter here that he thanks and sends to various places, and give titles for the type of people that God uses to change the world. I'm going to give you three titles of the type of folks that he uses. 
from the examples here. First, God uses forgiven failures. God uses forgiven failures to change the world. There's two guys here in this list. One is a guy named Onesimus. Onesimus is the focus of the, of the letter to Philemon. See, Onesimus had been a slave, a slave to Philemon. He had indebted himself to Philemon and therefore had to go work for him. But instead of paying off his debt to Philemon through his years of service to him, instead he skipped town and skipped past his debts and moved to Rome where Paul was imprisoned. So he ran out on his responsibilities. He bailed. He stole from the man who cared for him, from his master, and he ran off to Rome. But who did he encounter there? He ran right into Paul, became to know Jesus. And so in the book of Philemon, what we see is we see Paul pleading with Philemon that, one, he would forgive Onesimus, and then, two, that he would allow Onesimus to be of great service to Paul and now all, and to other churches in the region. Onesimus is a forgiven failure. He was someone who was running away from God, running away from his responsibilities in this world. Frankly, he was a deadbeat. And yet God saves him, and he redeemed him to make him a missionary for the kingdom. Second failure in the story we see is a guy named Mark. This is Mark, also known as John Mark in other places. Often people would have two names. They would have a Jewish name and a Greek name. Mark is a Jew of a prominent family. He's the one who has written the Gospel of Mark under Peter's tutelage. And you may know the story of Mark. Mark was a part of a missionary for one of Paul's first missionary journey. But they move along in the missionary journey. At, at some point, when they arrived at Perga, uh, there began to be some persecution there. And Mark bails. He goes home. Whether it was he missed the comforts of his uh, fairly probably wealthy family or the, the love of his mother or he, things just got too hard on the mission field, Mark peaced out. And so later on, when Paul comes back to Jerusalem and he's establishing and getting ready to go on another missionary journey, he and Barnabas have a significant fight over whether Mark should take Mark along. And so much so that Paul and Barnabas split ways. Paul goes one direction and Barnabas goes another direction. Paul, Barnabas ends up taking Mark. But over the course of many, many years, Mark is repentant for his failures. He begins to take on the mission once again. And what we see is that in the, in the, gospel, in the various gospel letters, or the letters by Paul to various churches, Mark is mentioned multiple times. For instance, here in Colossians 4, he says, Welcome uh, Mark back. In Philemon 24, he is referred to as a fellow worker. And what we see is that Paul, at the end of his life, who does he request to have near him? The failure that was Mark. See, we have Onesimus, who was a failure before he became a believer, and then we have Mark, who was a failure even after he became a believer. And yet, and yet, in their forgiveness, God uses them in bountiful ways. Are you a failure? Any of you have this experience in which you're like, I'm on the team, and then you failed in a big way. Maybe you failed morally. Maybe you had a relational failure. You had a fight. Maybe you had a failure of nerve. You just didn't have the guts to, to share your faith in the way you knew you were supposed to. Maybe you said, I'm supposed to lead that group or that ministry, and no, nah, it was too much for me. It's more than I could handle. Perhaps you just had a wisdom failure. You did something stupid that everybody knows about. But God uses forgiven failures. He puts them on his team, and they are the means in which God brings his kingdom to bear and makes it visible in this world. If you're a failure, it doesn't mean you're written off and you're simply pushed aside, there is forgiveness, and there's a bringing you back into the fold, into the call of ministry. 
Second type of person that is seen here is the non-heroic servants. And that is throughout Paul's team. The non-heroic servants. We'll start with Tychicus. Tychicus became a believer in Ephesus. He went with Paul from Macedonia to deliver a, 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 a love gift from the, from the churches in Macedonia to the church in Jerusalem, which was under great persecution. And what we see is that when Paul was arrested, that he stayed with Paul through his imprisonment and even in his shipwreck. He was intensely loyal to Paul. Here, what we see is he's the one who is playing Paul's messenger boy. Here's a man who is intensely loyal, and how is God using him? As a messenger boy for the lead man. But it's a prominent position. He must take this place of the messenger boy, and he takes the gospel. He takes the letter to the church in Colossae. He takes the letter to the church in Laodicea. He is a servant of Paul and a servant to God in that way. So that's Tychicus. Then there's Epaphras. What does Epaphras do? Epaphras, he serves in the quiet, non-heroic way called prayer. The way you serve, it's not in front of other people. It's in the quiet of the closet but it is full of power. What does Paul say that Epaphras says? Paul is the great church, Epaphras is the great church planter. He's the one who has established the church in Laodicea and in Colossae. But what does Paul say? How does he describe Epaphras' ministry? He says this, he says he is struggling for you and he is working hard. Those are words to describe his prayer life. No one sees it. No one sees it. I'm pretty convinced that those who are going to be closest to the throne room of God when we get to heaven are those that you've never heard their name, but the people, probably little old ladies who in their nursing home spent their final years in this world praying, praying, praying. Paphras, he prays. He's a committed servant, and he's not a hero. Hardly anybody knows his name. Then there's Aristarchus. Aristarchus, he may be my favorite. He's described literally as a prisoner of war. And perhaps we are to understand he was actually, he was probably imprisoned with Paul. He is from Thessalonica, and he was Jewish. And he was a faithful companion of Paul. We see in, in Ephesus, in Acts 19, that when Paul is preaching there, that there's such a conversion of, from, the, from the preaching of the gospel that so many people become believers that they begin burning their idols, so much so that, they, that the, the idolatry industry in Ephesus is being destroyed. A part of their economy is going away. And so the manufacturers of this industry rise up the people into a riot and they grow angry and they grab who? They grab Aristarchus. Aristarchus is right in the heat of it as in their worship to Diana and their anger at Paul for his gospel ministry. But Aristarchus is the one who takes the brunt of it. He's also with Paul when he went to Jerusalem and when Paul is arrested. And, and he is with Paul, probably we believe, on his journey both from Jerusalem all the way to Rome where he is going to face trial. Which means he was with Paul when Paul was shipwrecked. And here we see that he is with Paul again. This guy walks with, through it all with Paul. This is a faithful servant. And you've probably never heard his name. Aristarchus. Name your kids Aristarchus. He's a good guy. He's a fellow minister in the gospel. Then we finally get to a guy who you probably have heard of. Another gospel writer, a guy named Luke. Luke is mentioned, and he served Paul in probably various ways. Probably as a letter writer. Probably also taking care of Paul's physical needs. Paul had great weaknesses. And here it is. Luke goes along with Paul, perhaps his personal physician. You know, it's interesting here just to see the, the, the commitment level of these two men, Luke and Aristarchus is that we see that they were both in Paul, with Paul in Rome. And, and there's a commentator named Sir William Ramsey who was a Scottish archaeologist 
and a New Testament scholar, and he makes this point, and this is a point that is, that is debated, and so I'm not going to hold too much on it, but I, I think he makes good historical point here. It's, that he says this, that it's very likely that both Aristarchus and Luke had to become Paul's legal slaves in order to go with him to Rome. The reason why he points to that is he says the historian Pliny, who is a very prominent, prominent early uh, uh, church historian, talks about this and gives an account of a man who was going to Rome as a prisoner, and his wife wanted to go with him. But the authorities said, no, no, she can't go with you. But his slaves were allowed to go with him to care for his physical and specific needs. Ramsey says that this may be why Paul and Aristarchus were able to go with, to, with, uh, to Rome with Paul, that they actually sold themselves into legal enslavement into Paul in order to go with him and to support his ministry. Now, that's commitments. That's commitments. The people you've never heard of. You know, there's missionaries you've never heard of in many parts of the world that have done this very same thing. In, 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 in the 1800s, there was missionaries to the little country of Suriname in South America, and Suriname, these missionaries uh, went uh, to Suriname and they were trying to engage and do missionary work there. And they found out about these little islands that were just off the coast of Suriname. Suriname's on the north, uh, northeastern coast of South, Afri- South America. And they found out these little islands that were just off the coast that were slave islands. There were huge plantations there in which there were thousands upon thousands of slaves working on those plantations. But the plantation owners... Plantation owners, in their infinite wisdom and great business practices, would not allow anybody to speak with their slaves unless they were also a slave. They didn't want them letting them know about what the rest of the world was really like. But these missionaries, in an attempt because they so greatly desired to preach the gospel to the broken and the downtrodden and the enslaved of this world, what did they do? They sold themselves into slavery so that they could share the gospel. The people you've never heard of, the non-heroes... You, want, you see, being a hero and a great man or woman for God does not mean that you're up front. In fact, for those of us up front, there is great danger. Because frankly, being up here is somewhat antithetical to the gospel. To get the praise of man, God constantly uses the weak and the small and the quiet, the lowly ones and the quiet places who you never knew their names. God make us her, some humble servants, lowly and meek, and the power of the fellowship that we have here with Paul is that it's not a group of superheroes. It's not a group of people standing up in front of great crowds, the great men of history that you've heard of, but it is the invisible, the unseen, the non-heroic doing the ordinary work of ministry, sitting across the table with people struggling in their marriage, those who are having, have a difficult child, loving them through it. C.T. Studd, who was the great missionary who worked in Africa and China starting great missionary movements, he said this. He called his organization Etc. Evangelists. The no-name evangelists. He says this. It was, Peter, it was Jesus, Peter, Paul, and then the rest of us are etc. Jim Elliott said that we are nobodies telling everybody about somebody that can save anybody. We are nobodies telling everybody about somebody that can save anybody. These appear to be a bunch of nobodies, doesn't it? People that you've never heard of. Flyover country in the Bible is where they get their names. You've probably heard of Mark and Luke, maybe, Batikus, Aristarchus, Onesimus, Epaphras. They got their names in the credits, right? Who watches the credits? You're usually shaking off the popcorn, waking yourself up as the credits scroll and turning your back. So yes, we know the names of George Clooney and Meryl Streep. 
But without the list of names of producers and cameramen and the people who write the stories, there would be no George Clooney. In the same way, we know about Paul, right? But guess what? There is no letter to the church of Colossae unless there's Epaphras. God uses the non-heroic teams of people, the ordinary men and women, to do incredible things. The third type of groups of people he uses is weak ones. Weak ones. Two people here in the list. We see Archippus. I'm not going to say a whole lot here because we hardly know anything about him. But it says this. Say, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the, world, in the Lord. Many commentators believe that Archippus was struggling. And this is just Paul giving him a little slap on the back. Keep going, buddy. Press on. And we don't know too much about him. But the other guy I want to focus on in regards to weak ones is the, this brief mention of a guy named Demas. Demas, who's a part of Paul's team. But we know this from the last letter that Paul ever writes to 2 Timothy. He's soon to be executed, we believe, when he writes 2 Timothy. But we find there in 2 Timothy that Demas deserts Paul. He deserts Paul, and here's the indication. Here's the reason why. It says that Demas loved the world. Now, there's not necessarily an indication that Demas necessarily apostatized. He may have. He may have simply completely rejected the faith. Or he simply became what we call the carnal Christian. Now, I'm not sure that's a true category, but he essentially, he, he left the fields. He did what Mark did earlier. He wimped out. And we don't, this is the final word we have about Demas. Here's the word I wanted to say about that. Here's what we learned from the presence of Demas on the team. God is sovereign in who he has put on the team. And God could use even weak Christians, and perhaps at times there are, there are wolves in sheep's clothing, and for some reason God uses them in his kingdom as well. God uses even those for a time and a season who will eventually backslide. I don't understand it in his sovereignty and his providence, but he does anyways. Listen, this is, this is part of my history and the story that I have. My youth pastor, a man, I had great parents who taught me the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. But like many people, it took somebody else to communicate the grace of Jesus. And on a mission trip, my youth pastor, a man named Dan. Dan preached from the book of Hosea, and, and, and the penny dropped for me when I was 15 years old. And the grace of God through the way in which he was able to articulate the gospel, it, it moved me and changed my life. Five years later, Dan left the ministry because he had extorted over $60,000 from his church. He later left the ministry entirely after multiple churches to pursue a gay lifestyle. He doesn't love Jesus. We're friends on Facebook. He's running as fast as he can away from Jesus. Does that demean his work in my life? In God's providence, God used him who appears, at least in the evidence that we have now, a backslidden person who's run away from the faith, who doesn't appear to be a believer, and yet God has used even him in my life. Some of you know the name Darren Patrick. I shed tears a couple weeks ago. A man um, who's been well-known, he led a church of about 3,000. And in the last couple of years, there's been young guys, men that I have enjoyed and appreciated. You may have heard their names, Tolian Chavigian, Mark Driscoll. Men who've gotten in trouble for the way in which they have led their churches, they have fallen into adultery, this happens on a weekly basis. And, and this has probably been your experience. You've had someone who has served you well and has preached the word of God to you, and yet you had somebody in your life who was on the team, we thought. They, they reject the faith, or they simply, they peace out from service, and they disappoint you. I would say don't let that discredit the power of God's work in your life and what God did through them. Yes, grieve. Grieve their loss from the team. Grieve their loss from God's church. But notice this, that this is the, 
look who God can use. And if God can use forgiven failures and know nothing, no name, non-heroic people, and yes, he can even use people who may walk away from the faith, he can use you who I trust, that I trust by the evidence and the fruits of your life that you're filled by the Spirit of Jesus. There, are, there was men and women. There were those who had sordid backgrounds. There was those who had been failed Christians. There were the weak. There were Jew and Gentiles. This is a diverse fellowship. And what did God do? He used them to change the world. And this is the model that God uses. In fact, this is the model that Jesus uses too, didn't he? Jesus doesn't stay. He stays for what? Maybe 34, 35, 33 years is the typical thing. We're not really sure. But Jesus lives in utter obscurity for the vast majority of his life. And then he takes 12 knuckleheads. And you know what? Jesus dies on a cross. He's a great man. He's God in the flesh. He has a great message, the gospel. But how has the world changed? Jesus goes to heaven. He does it this way. He sends his spirit into the, well, the 11 knuckleheads. And what happens is they take the gospel to the known world. And the world is flipped upside down. A team of knuckleheads, of know-nothings, of non-heroes. We know their names now. But they served in quiet places and the world was changed. This is how God is changing the world. So we've covered all those names. All right, there's other guys like Justice. We don't know anything about him. There's Nympha. We're not, we're not sure if it's a woman, what's going on there. But Paul, in verse 18, we come to the last point where Paul concludes his final greetings in this way. Verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hands. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Three quick things to say. Well, two real quick, and then we'll get to the thing I want to talk about. First is this. Paul's Paul's making sure that you know that it's him authentically who's writing this letter. There was apparently an issue in the early church where people were claiming to be Paul and writing letters to churches and saying things that were not in line with the gospel. And so Paul apparently has a mark, a particular signature, that he writes on his letter so people know that it was him. That's this point there. Second, we see the poignancy of this. He says, remember my chains. We're not entirely sure why Paul said that. It could be he's asking for prayer. It could be that he's communicating. Look at the grace that is being extended to you. That there is one who would, go to, who would be enchained for the sake of the gospel. Look at what, what we will expend out for your good and for your welfare as believers. But the main thing, the most important thing I want you to see is the whole point of Paul's ministry. And here it is. Paul tells us this, how God is sustaining us. And how is God sustaining us? Well, Paul talks about it. It's the bookends of the whole book. It starts and ends in the exact same ways. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, it says, grace is where Paul has started. It says, grace to you and peace from God the Father. Paul begins. He goes, I'm Paul. You're the Colossian church. And then the first thing he actually says directly to them is, grace to you. And the last thing he says to them is, Grace be with you. Grace be with you. Paul begins with grace and he ends with grace. Let me read you a lengthy quote that John Piper has on this particular phrase. I think is important. I'm going to read it to you kind of like a commentary. I'm sorry for that, but uh, bear with me. He says this, Paul has in mind here that the letter itself is a channel in saying grace to you at the beginning, that the channel of God's grace to his readers. Grace is about to flow from God to the church in Colossae through Paul's writings here. So he says, grace to you. But as the end, as he comes to the end of the letter approaches, Paul realizes that the reading is almost finished and the question arises, what becomes of the grace that has been flowing to the readers through the reading of the inspired letter? And he answers with a blessing at the end of every letter. Grace be 
with you. Grace be with you as you put the letter away and leave the church. Grace be with you as you go home to deal with a sick child and an unaffectionate spouse. Grace be with you as you go on to work and face the temptations of anger and dishonesty and lust. Grace go with you as you muster courage to speak up for Christ over lunch. And he goes on to finish and says this. Thus we learn that grace is ready to flow to us every time we take up the inspired scriptures to read them. And we learn that grace will abide with us even when we lay the Bible down and go about our daily living. End quote. Here's the point, that it is all from grace, from first to last. See, we often think about grace, grace is what saved me. But brothers and sisters, grace is also what sustains you. When I change the world, you've got to be sustained. You've got to make it to the finish line. Saving grace is not the only kind of grace or sustaining grace. In 2 Corinthians 12, we see Paul here talking about the sustaining grace of Jesus Three times in 2 Corinthians 12 it says that Paul prays for this weakness in the flesh to be taken away. But then we learn in God's answer says this. We learn that grace will abide with us. We learn this. He says it's my grace that God tells him that my grace is all you need. Grace is all you need. For my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. We think it's the strong who changed the world. My power is made perfect in weakness. F.F. F. Bruce is a great New Testament commentator, says this. He paraphrases that, says this. My grace is all you need, for my power is most fully displayed when my people are weak. When my people are weak. Grace is not only unmerited favor that saves you, but grace is the sustaining help of God that keeps you on your feet through the long journey, the pilgrimage we saw we call Christianity. That's why... If, if you're struggling with your Christian life, I totally recommend that you pick up a little book. Pilgrims brought it over. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. We're actually about to, our next series this summer is what we're going to do is we're going to pilgrim, calling it Pilgrim Through the Psalms. We're going to pick up on various themes of what it looks like to pilgrim and how David and the other psalmists help us walk through the emotions and the experiences of the Christian life. But here this scene from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. There is a scene where Christian, he's the main character, his name's Christian, Comes into an interpreter's house. That's another guy. Weird names in Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory. Deal with it. And interpreter shows him various scenarios to instruct him on the basics of the Christian life. And Christian saw here that the interpreter brought him to a place where there was a fire burning against a wall. And there was a, per- a person standing beside the fire, throwing a bunch of water on the fire, trying to put the fire out. But the fire grew only higher and hotter. So Christian asked the interpreter, what does this mean? The interpreter said... That is the work of grace that is wrought in the hearts. And he who casts fire upon it, though, is, is trying to extinguish it. That one is the devil. But do you want to see the reason that the fire still burns higher and hotter? I will show you the reason. And so he took Christian around to the back side of the wall, and there he saw a man stoop down with a vessel of oil in which he was continually throwing the oil in the fire, but he was doing it secretly. And Christian asked, What does this mean? And the interpreter answered, That is Christ who is continually with the oil of his grace, maintains the work already begun in your heart, by the means of which, though the devil do what he may, the souls of God's people prove gracious still. And in that thou seest that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire. This is to teach you that it is often hard in the midst of temptation to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. But by the work of Jesus Christ it is. 
It is done secretly. There is always grace that continually flows from Christ to his people to sustain us. Listen, brothers and sisters, we've talked about your marriage and how to apply the supremacy of Christ to your marriage and to your parenting, to your work life. What's going to sustain you? You see, my, my great concern for you college students who are graduating and leaving and my great concern for so many of you is not what holds tomorrow, but that you would give up three weeks, three years, 30 years from now. That you would stop clinging to the sovereign grace of Jesus that sustains you. Listen, you're about to walk. We're going to leave the book of Colossians, the encouragements here. You're going to walk back into the drudgery of work and the pain of parenting and the suffering of marriage. But even there, there is grace. There's grace for you still. So here's what I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that there is grace is always the first word. And it is always the last. Let's go to the table of grace. Will you pray with me? Those who are going to serve communion can come forward. Lord, I confess we think too much of ourselves. At least, I would say, the most typical day in my life is I get up and think about what I can accomplish and how I can take part in my individualistic hero, with, hero, hero efforts. But Lord, I am so weak. And so Lord, I pray the dangerous prayer that you would reveal to us our weakness. And that in our weakness that we would run to the, the, the partnership in the gospel that we would have with other people. And even more so that we would run to the greatness of God that we sang about earlier. That we'd run to your sustaining grace saying, God, I am so weak. May you make me strong in your power. So reveal yourself. Gracious God, may we be a people who are so on mission, who are so have such a beautiful, great vision of what you're calling us to and changing the world to bring the kingdom to bear, to make the invisible kingdom visible in this world, that you would so, it would so catch a vision for that, that it would be a vision and a mission that is so beyond us that we would go, God, Unless you do it, this will fall flat on its face. Lord, we thank you that in every step of the way, you sustain us and you feed us. And so, Lord, we now come to the table, the table of grace that feeds us week in and week out, month in and month out. And, Lord, we set aside this plain, ordinary bread. And may you be gracious to us through it. Will you set aside this plain, ordinary cup that represents your blood, and may it be the grace to us that reminds us of our righteousness in Jesus. Fill us by your grace and your mercy even now, and experience even as we take and we eat. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.